Let's just bow our heads for a moment of prayer. Only Father, we just heard your word written to us, and we pray that you would speak to us now by your Spirit. Uh, open our eyes, open our hearts to understand and to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. That reading was from John's Gospel, uh, which forms a particular part of the Bible with uh, Mark's Gospel, Matthew's Gospel, and Luke's Gospel. And these are all uh, eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, uh, records of his teaching. Uh, They tell us what happened to Jesus when he was crucified and how he rose again. And these were all written by people who were very close to Jesus or knew people who were very close to Jesus. Matthew, who wrote Matthew's Gospel, was one of Jesus' followers, one of his disciples. Mark was a close companion of Simon Peter, another disciple of Jesus. Uh, Luke was a travelling companion of Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, a leader in the early church. And he himself visited eyewitnesses to hear their story. And this Gospel that we just heard read to us, this was written by John. And John was one of Jesus' followers who was very close to Jesus, uh, who throughout John's Gospel is described as the one whom Jesus loved. John tells us why he wrote uh, this Gospel, why he took the time uh, to write down his memories of Jesus, his encounters with Jesus, and the sayings of Jesus. In chapter 20, verse 30, he says this, Jesus performed many of the signs in the presence of his disciples. Uh, These are not recorded in this book. But these are written down that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. John is giving us here his uh, testimony of Jesus. And a testimony is where you you say uh, what has happened to you, and also where you say what you think the significance of what has happened to you is. John is writing about Jesus that other people might learn about Jesus, but also they might discover the significance of Jesus. He wants his readers in his day and in our day, not just to know about Jesus, but to know him personally and to know the significance of what he did and what he said. In this chapter, the first chapter of John's Gospel, there are a number of people who encounter Christ. There's John the Baptist. There's two of his followers, Andrew and another. There's Simon Peter, Andrew's brother. There's Philip, whom we're told uh, Jesus found. I imagine him just kind of wandering around and Jesus kind of button-holing him. And there's Nathaniel, who Philip in turn found and brought to Christ. And they all share their testimonies, uh, their recollection of who Jesus is and what he means to them. We're not going to look at all of them this morning, but just, just consider one. And that's the testimony of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a leader in Jesus' day. He's different to John, the, the, the uh, disciple who wrote this gospel. Uh, he read a, led a renewal movement within uh, Judaism. Uh, he baptised people as, uh, we, as we've had baptisms uh, this morning. And John's baptism was a, a baptism down in the river. Uh, Jews would gather together, he would preach to them, and then he would baptise them uh, for repentance. Repentance. 
baptise them as a sign of their uh, turning their lives around. Baptise them as a sign of them making a new start in life. They wanted to change. And as a sign of the change they wanted to make, they were baptised in the river. And then one day, John sees Jesus. And he says this about them, just about Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Son of God. I baptise in water, but he will baptise with God's Spirit. I'm going to briefly look at two elements of that testimony this morning. The first is this. Behold the Lamb of God. What does it mean that Jesus is the Lamb of God? A vicar who is braver than I am once asked uh, his congregation, uh, why do you think Jesus is called the Lamb of God? There was a bit of mumbling and scratching of heads and uh, discussion in the pews, and then finally somebody uh, ventured an answer. We think he was called the Lamb of God because he was nice and gentle like a lamb. I wonder if that's what comes to your mind this morning. Well, if that's your image of Jesus, I suggest you have a slightly defective image. What about the Jesus who called the Pharisees a brood of vipers? What about Jesus who called Herod a fox? What about Jesus who stood bravely before Pilate and refused to answer his questions? What about Jesus who walked into the temple and kicked over the tables of the money changers and drove them out with his fists? Jesus is called the Lamb of God not because he is nice and gentle, but because in the words of John, he will take away the sins of the world. In the centre of Jerusalem in Jesus' day, there was a great temple Uh, You couldn't miss it. It was the the most dominant feature of the city, a huge, huge building. Uh, People would come from all over the known world uh, just to see it and perhaps uh, to visit it, like they do some of the great buildings of our day. And worship was offered every day, all day in that temple. It's the place where the Jews uh, would go to pray. There was a place where non-Jews could gather and pray. There was a place where Jewish women could gather and pray. There was a place where Jewish men could gather and pray. There was a place where priests could gather and pray. And there were two special services, one in the morning and one in the evening, where sacrifices would be offered. And you could go to the temple and you could buy a lamb and the lamb would be offered in sacrifice. Those sacrifices were known as guilt offerings. The Jews were deeply conscious that we all do things that displease God. We all do things that separate us from his love. And those things have to be reckoned with. And they were reckoned with through the offering of a lamb. And those lambs were offered morning and evening, day after day. As the lamb died, their sin would die with it. And then John sees Jesus and he says, Behold, the lamb, the lamb who will take away the sins of the whole world. 
The lamb who will offer a sacrifice that need never be repeated. How much are you worth? It's not a polite question to ask, but it's a question we all ask of ourselves and sometimes we ask of one another. How much am I worth? How much is a businesswoman worth? How much is her pension? How much is her salary? How much is her stock options? How much is a footballer worth? £20,000 a week? £200,000 a week? If you go to China, £600,000 a week. Are you worth it? The first great emperor of the the, uh, Mede and Persian Empire was called Cyrus. And as was the, the, the custom of the day, he waged war upon his neighbors. And he would capture kings and princes, and then he would ransom them back uh, to their uh, relatives. He once captured a prince and his family. The prince and his family were brought before uh, Cyrus the monarch. And he asked the prince, What will you give me if I release you? The half of all my wealth, was the reply. Cyrus asked another question. And what would you give me to release your children? Everything I possess, said the prince. And what will you give me to release your wife? Your majesty, said the prince. I would give my life for my wife. Cyrus was so moved by this man's devotion to his wife and his children that he immediately released them all and sent them back to their country, hoping to make an ally, not an enemy. Once the prince and his family returned to their homeland, uh, he turned to his wife and says, Surely Cyrus is a king of great stature. He is, replied his wife. But he's not great enough to die in my place. How much are you worth? Jesus said he came to give his life as a ransom, to lay it down and take it up again for the sins of the whole world. That's the first testimony of John. The second is this, behold the Son of God. Verse 34. I've seen and I testify that Jesus is the Son of God. As a church and as a community, we've just celebrated Christmas. And in Christmas, we reflect upon the fact that God has come and dwelt among us. God's Son has been born among us, not in a palace, but in a manger, in a stable in Bethlehem. The Son of God has left the majesty of heaven to be born in poverty. Why would he do this? This was the question a Scottish farmer asked of his wife many years ago. Why would he do this? The idea that God would become man was absurd to him. His wife, however, was a devout Christian and raised her children as Christians. And the farmer would sometimes mock her and give her a hard time about her faith. In particular, he could not believe that God would want to come into this world, uh, be born as a child, live as a man, and die upon a cross. It's nonsense, he said. Why should God lower himself 
to become a man like me. One Sunday, just before Christmas, his wife took the children to church and the farmer was relaxing at home in front of a blazing fire. The weather took a turn for the worst, uh, deteriorating into a blinding snowstorm uh, driven by a freezing north wind. Suddenly he heard a thump on the window and then another and then another. He went out into the courtyard to investigate And there he discovered a flock of grey geese disoriented by the storm. Uh, They were all crashing into his farmland, uh, wandering around confused and disoriented uh, in the blinding snow. The farmer had compassion upon them. He wanted to help them and he realised that they needed to get out of the blizzard or they would surely die. He opened the doors of his barn, he lit a lantern and he encouraged them to go in but they would not move. He threw bread before them and bread into the barn, hoping that he could entice them in, but it wouldn't work. They just uh, wandered around. He tried to shepherd them like he might shepherd his sheep, but to no avail. He couldn't drive them into the barn. Utterly frustrated, he cried aloud, You fools! Why won't you just go in? If only... I could talk to them. If only if I could become one of them and lead them in. And then he saw to his amazement the geese going one by one into the barn with a white goose leading them. And at last he understood why God had become man. If only I could become one of them, I could lead them to safety and security. The testimony of John the Baptist and John the disciples is that Jesus is unique. He's the Lamb of God, he's the Lamb of God who alone takes away the sins of the world. He's the Son of God who alone reveals the Father's love. What will we make of this news? A final story? and a story about another John. One of the great Christian leaders of our time was a man called uh, John Stott, and he died a few years ago. He was a great, a great preacher. And he used to tell of an occasion when he was having his hair cut, and he was sat in the barber's chair. Another customer was sat beside him, and he, he noticed in the mirror that John was wearing his clerical collar, and he, he guessed he was a vicar. And so he said to him, do you mind, sir, if I ask you a question? Not at all, replied the ever-polite John. The man then said, could you tell me in one sentence, what is the essential message of the Christian faith? John thought for a moment and said, well, I I will tell you, and I will tell you in one sentence, but first, give me time to think. If you wait for the time it takes for me to have my hair cut when I'm finished, I will, I will sum up the Christian faith in one sentence. And the man said, of course, I'll, I'll, I'll wait for you to have your hair cut. At the end of uh, his time, he had his answer ready. And he said to the man, the heart of the Christian message is this. Jesus Christ wants to come into the center of your life and move you to the circumference. He wants to come into the centre of your life and move you to the circumference. 
The man's face dropped. Oh, he replied, I don't think I want to be decentralised. The reply of John the Baptist on discovering who Jesus was was the exact opposite. He saw Jesus and he said, I am unworthy even to untie his sandals. We fall before him in humility or will we turn away from him in pride? Let's bow our heads in prayer. I'm going to pray a prayer that was written many years ago by Catherine Parr, uh, Henry VIII's last wife. It's a a prayer of consecration, a prayer of self-offering. You might want to make this prayer your own. Almighty God, put me where thou wilt and freely do with me in all things after thy will. Thy creature I am, and in thy hands lead me, and turn me where thou wilt. Lo, I am thy servant, ready to do all things that thou commandest. For I desire not to live to myself, but for thee. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.